I'm Dr Tim Wilson of the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews. In the last podcast, I talked about the emergence of the modern Irish question up until the end of World War I. In this session, I'll take the story further down the 20th century and into the 21st century with reflections on the current peace process and how the degree of stability that Northern Ireland now enjoys relates back to that longer history. As the First World War ended, a victorious Britain turned once again to deal with an Irish question that it had paid very little attention to for the previous four years. The paradox here was that peace at the global level led to the outbreak of violence, the so-called First Troubles, in Ireland. This is a very brutal period of Irish history. In the 20th century, Belfast's most violent years were between 1920 and 1922, 1922 in particular. We need to understand why violence was so much more intense in this period than it had been during the long tradition of Victorian riots in Belfast. There are several factors here. One was the prolonged political malaise and drift that meant that a British government now under the leadership of Lloyd George, but Conservative dominated, a coalition government, was extremely reluctant to deal with the Irish question. It had an awful lot else on its plate in terms of reconstructing Europe, but was eventually forced to do so. The Better Government of Ireland Act built on existing precedents in that it enshrined the principle of partition, that the island should be split, but this time on more favourable terms than had been the case in 1914. This time, six counties in the largely northeast of the island, the present-day Northern Ireland, were delineated as a province that would not come under home rule. It also tried to preserve the home rule precedent, but this time there was not to be one devolved government in Dublin, but two devolved governments, one in Belfast and one in Dublin. The proposed Home Rule government for Dublin, for the other 26 counties, the rest of the island, never met effectively because it had been overtaken by events on the ground. Starting in January 1919 with an ambush in Tipperary of a police patrol guarding a load of dynamite, two policemen were shot, what is often seen as the opening shots of the so-called Anglo-Irish War. Also by the political developments, Sinn Féin constituted itself in the Doyle Éireann, the Irish Parliament, as a separatist parliament that didn't recognise the authority of the British government in London anymore. Sinn Féin, with its armed wing, the Irish Volunteers, increasingly known by its new name, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, conducting ambushes on isolated police barracks in the south of Ireland, these two forces together, the political wing and the armed wing, pioneered an insurrectionist model that has been very widely copied throughout the 20th century. The idea was to develop a broad political front with its own propaganda wing, essentially a parallel state that met, when it could, in session with a parliament and with its own judiciary. One of the key achievements of the Irish Republican movement in undermining British rule over much of Southern Ireland was the parallel court system, the so-called Doyle courts, which were derided by the British as kangaroo courts, but were often incredibly effective in settling local disputes. 
As British rule shrank over much of the south and west of the island, as policemen could no longer protect themselves and withdrew to larger and larger barracks, it didn't create a power vacuum so much as room for this Republican counter-state to grow and put down roots. The British government was left in a dilemma. They had no intention of allowing Sinn Féin to present its demands for Irish independence at the Paris Peace Conference, as they tried to do, outside the north of the island, where Ulster Unionist support held strong. In many places, British rule had effectively collapsed. The expedients that they turned to to try and shore up their position were to have long-lasting ramifications. They did use the British army, but they tried not to overuse it. Their main strategy was to try and beef up the police. The old RIC, Royal Irish Constabulary, given the moniker Royal after the successful crushing of the 1867 Fenian Rebellion. The London government injected a fresh infusion of demobilised war veterans, English, Scottish, not from Ireland, many of them. And because of their makeshift uniforms, they were known as the Black and Tans, a nickname that has stuck There was also a force called the Auxiliaries, who were essentially ex-officers. They were brutal. They were ill-disciplined. They did have some effects on managing to suppress IRA activity, but at an enormous price. The leadership of the Irish Republican movement, under several key figures, Eamon de Valera, a survivor of the 1916 Rising, increasingly, of course, Michael Collins, trained by the British had worked in London for years, an excellent bureaucrat, had worked in the post office, skills he put to good use in fighting the British. They realised that provocative tactics worked. If you could goad these ill-disciplined pro-British forces, which is effectively what the Irish police had become, into overreactions, into spectacular reprisals such as burning down the whole of the centre of Cork at the end of 1920, or entire rows of houses in villages like Bullbriggan, It was deeply embarrassing for the British government. The Prime Minister was Lloyd George, the man who had made his reputation opposing British excesses in the concentration camps of the Boer War 20 years earlier. A British army that had lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers in World War I was not about to be bled dry in the back lanes of West Cork by a handful of ambushes that killed about 267 British troops. That was not what was going to break British rule in Ireland. But embarrassment could. By the summer of 1921, a kind of crisis point had been reached where it was clear the British military could reconquer the island, but the political cost might be unaffordable. It would need a lot more violence, a lot more reprisals, and probably concentration camps. And that was not something that Lloyd George was willing to countenance. On the other hand, the IRA were not in good shape by the summer of 1921. They were exhausted, many of them on the run, They were beginning to be penetrated by British intelligence countermeasures, and they also had their incentives for seeking some sort of truce. So a hurting stalemate, a classic set of preconditions for talks to begin, were in place by the summer of 21. That begins a process of de-escalation of the conflict in most of the island, a prolonged period of exchanges of letters and to borrow a phrase from the 1990s peace process, talks about talks that culminate 
at the very tail end of 1921 in face-to-face negotiations between Lloyd George's coalition government and a Sinn Féin delegation sent by de Valera in 10 Downing Street. Notoriously, he didn't attend himself, let Michael Collins lead the delegation. In the 1990s, when the Sinn Féin delegation met Tony Blair for the very first time at 10 Downing Street, it is said that Jerry Adams, walking into the cabinet room, said, oh, so this is where it all happened. The Blair government ministers took him to mean this is a reference to the mortar attack on John Major's government in the cabinet room. What, of course, he actually meant was this is the room where the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in the 6th of December 1921. Lloyd George offered the Sinn Féin delegation a deal that they were pragmatic enough to accept. The deal, from their point of view, was a distinct advance on home rule. It was that there should be an Irish free state in most of the island, the 26 counties, and that it wouldn't be part of the United Kingdom, but it must remain part of the British Empire, and its ministers must swear an oath of allegiance to the Crown as the head of the British Empire, not as the head of state. This was a deal that Michael Collins famously said wasn't freedom but might be the freedom to achieve freedom and was good enough for the Sinn Féin delegation. It wasn't good enough for all in the wider Irish Republican movement. One sees in Sinn Féin in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising this spectacular unity of a mass-mobilised movement through 1918, 19, 20, 21 and then inevitably a split when a deal is put on the table that is from their point of view, highly imperfect. What is deeply striking about the Anglo-Irish Treaty as signed and the reactions to it is that the Irish Republicans argued longest, deepest, most bitterly over the terms of the oath of allegiance to the Crown. That's what bothered most people. They were apparently much less bothered by Article 12 of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which allowed an opt-out to the provisional entity of Northern Ireland that had already been created just before the truce back in the summer of 1921. It's perhaps best explained by a couple of factors. One, that Irish Republicans didn't think partition could ever be legitimate or could ever be sustained and therefore wouldn't be sustained. A united Ireland would be achieved in time. And secondly, the skill with which Lloyd George sold them the deal. Article 12 of the Anglo-Irish Treaty is a masterpiece of ambiguity that says that in accordance with the wishes of the inhabitants, the border will be rectified, but essentially a Northern Ireland will be created. Lloyd George seems to have left the Sinn Féin delegation with a clear impression that this would absolutely mutilate Northern Ireland and leave such a tiny remnant that it would be reabsorbed into a united Ireland in the long run. To the Ulster Unionists, in parallel negotiations, he gave absolutely the opposite impression that this would lead to minor modifications only. If Irish governments in 2018 are somewhat sceptical about London's reassurances of how an Irish border might work in the future and that all details can be sorted out later, they have good historical precedent. The Anglo-Irish Treaty was passed by a majority of the Sinn Féin movement, with a large minority opposing it, passed by the Lloyd George coalition government with considerable Tory opposition, but it stuck and created the geopolitical realities as we know them today, nearly 100 years later. The interesting thing about the entire period of the truce and the treaty, summer to 
autumn and winter of 1921, is that de-escalation of the conflict between British government forces and the Irish Republican insurgents throughout most of the island was matched by an explosion of violence in the north of the island. Ulster Unionists, then as now, were somewhat sceptical about London reassurances. They thought truce between the British government and the IRA might lead to more concessions to Irish Republicans. Equally, in the Catholic nationalist minority community in the new Northern Ireland, there was a sense that the IRA were in the ascendant and that the future might belong to them. The key point is how unstable Northern Ireland looked at its birth. An opening of a subordinate parliament, June 1921, was immediately followed by a period of mayhem and instability in which IRA police openly paraded on the streets with their weapons, in which the British government tried to clamp down on local Unionist security forces, and an emerging Unionist government that felt more and more insecure. And this picture only darkens as the new year of 1922 dawned as it became clear that the treaty that had been established would actually stick and that the British army and British rule would end over 26 counties. Northern Ireland entered one of its worst periods of the 20th century. Unionist rule was eventually consolidated. The British government, looking to economise, was not willing to flood the area with troops. The British army was used, but they put the burden of local security control on a new force, an auxiliary to the police. The police were being reformed from the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was an all-Ireland force, to a six-county force, Royal Ulster Constabulary. And they needed more muscle. They found it in the USC, the Ulster Special Constabulary, mostly part-time volunteers. They were Protestant civilians enrolled as special constables. A small minority received full-time pay. They were called the A-specials. The majority were called the B-specials or the B-men and became the backbone of the force. There was also the C-specials who were to be called out only in an emergency and they were the people whom the new Northern Irish government barely trusted to give a weapon to. They were so ill-disciplined. The legacy of the B-specials is, 100 years later, still toxic. They have their apologists, those who say... They helped the Northern Irish government consolidate control, which they undoubtedly did. They have their critics who say they were brutal, ill-disciplined, sectarian crushers of Catholic and IRA resistance. Certainly, by early 21st century standards, their methods could be rough and ready. There is a fair number of shootings to which they seem to be connected, not least a notorious murder of the Odin McMahon family, a well-known Belfast publican, Catholic, who, with five other male members of his household, were shot dead in March 1922. They left a legacy that, in the Catholic minority, in the new emerging Northern Ireland, was hated and helped shape events 50 years later. A consolidated Northern Ireland did emerge in the summer of 1922, in large part, thanks to a stroke of luck, the broiling tensions over the Anglo-Irish Treaty finally cracked open on the 28th of June 1922, when civil war broke out in Dublin between a pro-treaty wing and an anti-treaty wing of the IRA. The pro-treaty wing, what becomes the new Irish Free State Government, initially under Michael Collins' leadership, won that civil war. What that did was dampen down the IRA insurgency in the new Northern Ireland and turned off violence. If one thinks of the kind of whole early 20s troubles as a seesaw, the truce tipped the balance of violence from the south to the north. A year later, in June 1922, civil war tipped the violence back to the south. But by 1923, violence in the south was over as well. The Irish Free State Government had won. 
and consolidated their control over 26 counties. In the north, the Unionist government had consolidated their control over six counties. It's clear that the losers in the Irish settlement were Northern Irish Catholics. That, unfortunately, was a pattern that set hard. Catholic nationalist dismay of finding themselves still part of the United Kingdom, but now in a devolved part under direct Unionist rule, a part where increasingly London paid little attention, was to be a deeply formative experience for the Northern Irish Catholic community. It was one that they found hard to recover from politically. The new parliament that was eventually opened at Stormont outside Belfast was unionist dominated. It looked like Westminster. It had the same colour leathered benches. The one piece of successful legislation that a nationalist opposition managed to get onto the statute books in the entire period of Stormont's existence from 1921 through to its abolition in 1972 was the Wild Birds Protection Act of 1949. Rather meagre returns for what was a long period of opposition campaigns by the nationalist minority. Their opposition was ineffectual because they were locked into a perpetual minority. Successful British parliamentary democracy works on the assumption majorities can change. In Northern Ireland, where political loyalties and voting patterns followed constitutional preferences in the main, that was never really possible. Unionist hegemony at Stormont looked absolute, although, as the long term would prove, was actually more brittle than it might appear at first glance. London's attitudes to Northern Ireland in the mid-20th century was one of almost bottomless indifference. Northern Ireland had connections as part of the British state to the Whitehall machinery. It was, however, administered from a basement in Whitehall that also looked after the administration of dog licences. That very eloquently describes how high on British political priorities Northern Ireland tended to sit. Westminster Parliament had developed a convention that questions relating to Northern Ireland should be discussed at Stormont, and although there was no legal barrier to their discussing them in Westminster, they chose overwhelmingly not to do so. Throughout the mid-20th century and what was a difficult Second World War period, Belfast was heavily bombed by the German Luftwaffe. Northern Ireland was never entirely peaceful for long periods, if by that we understand peace as a total absence of violence. In 1939-1940, there was an attempt at a renewed IRA campaign to unite the island, which had two wings, one in England, one in Northern Ireland. It was very quickly brought under control in the enhanced security environment of the Second World War. There was also an attempt from 1956 onwards, the so-called Operation Harvest, to mount a border campaign, an attempt by Irish Republicans to launch attacks out of what had become the Irish Republic, the old Irish Free State, to essentially shrink the area of Unionist control. Many of the areas that were troubled in the late 1950s by these kind of attacks along the border are still today hotbeds of so-called dissident republicanism. These were disjointed, ill-organised campaigns. The troubles that broke out from the late 60s were entirely different because they were more intense, because they were multifaceted, because different types of violence fed off each other to create a spiral of ongoing violence from late 1968 or so through to 1998, and with an aftermath that, at a very reduced level, continues to this day. 
1998, a comprehensive peace deal finally put a full stop on the Troubles. It was a peace deal that was achieved with enormous external pressure, with American support, with London and Dublin deeply involved to get the local parties around the table to agree a deal that enforced power sharing in which both nationalists and unionists were mandated to share power to try and bring lasting stability. Such power sharing agreements are always controversial. They are always cold bargains to avoid repeated disasters rather than any deep lasting rapprochement between political opponents. The verdict is still out on how successful that political settlement has been. The reality in 2018, 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, is that power sharing is in abeyance. It has been suspended, as it has been several times before, but at the current moment without, it seems, a realistic prospect of resurrection. Many observers, particularly outsiders to Northern Ireland, find this surprising as to why more political progress has not been achieved. The question of whether we should be disappointed by the quality of peace, the elusiveness of lasting security in Northern Ireland in the early 21st century, is best approached in a longer-term and comparative perspective. Many divided societies go through an apparently similar trajectory over the longer term of shorter periods of intensive violence, longer periods of what's sometimes called tranquility and absence of violence, but not a true embedded peace. This is often a matter of surprise to outsiders. They tend to ask in the words of the graffiti that is painted on peace walls in Belfast, why can't people get along? Many people do get along in early 21st century Northern Ireland, whichever communal background they are from. Human nature is as good or as bad as anywhere else. The true number of bigots is often surprisingly low. There is plenty of goodwill. It's perhaps more fruitful to try and understand a society like Northern Ireland as a kind of force field where clearly defined communities are on opposite ends of an antagonistic relationship that structures public life in profound ways. That doesn't mean friendship, good neighbourliness is not possible, that violence is always prevalent, but it does mean that a folk memory of violence, the possibility that it might start up again, remains as a threat to structure relations and attitudes. Although violence in the Northern Irish Troubles had many sources and many actors, many targets, we can perhaps disaggregate two main axes. One, a top-down axis of conflict between British state authorities and an IRA insurgency. Another is more horizontal, what is sometimes called sectarian violence or intercommunal violence. In other words, the murder of individuals, not because of anything they've done, but because they are seen as representative of the Catholic community or the Protestant community. There's an asymmetry here. There is more killing of Catholics by loyalist paramilitaries than there is killing of Protestant civilians by the IRA. But it's not a total asymmetry. Both did at times go on. The key thing about this sectarian violence is that it is representative. Victims are chosen as representatives of whole communities. The tragedy of Northern Ireland is, leaving aside a few other minorities, historically very, very small indeed, that everyone 
is conventionally seen as a representative of one of the major communities or the other. So the point is this. If victims can be chosen as representatives of whole communities, and if everyone is a representative of one community or the other, then everyone, more or less, is potentially a victim. If everyone is potentially a victim, it takes very few people to kill just enough people to scare everybody. You don't have to support violence to understand its implications. That if their side are hunting people like me, it might make sense to be rather wary of all of them. Very often, what academics and government officials think of as the most significant violence, IRA bombs against British politicians, spectacular ambushes or SAS counterattacks, is not what many ordinary people say was the most terrifying violence to live through. Some of that violence you could try and avoid, but the violence that might come to your own door, that was unpredictable, was in many ways the most terrifying violence of all. It is clear, reading memoirs, reading diaries, reading newspapers, that in many ways the most terrifying points of Belfast's troubled 20th century were precisely those moments when cycles of sectarian or representative killing were at their height. Early 1922, 1972, 1975 to 6, times in the early 90s. Times when, to quote a Belfast judge from a murder trial in 1922, the entire neighbourhood was vibrating with murder. A key facet of sectarian killing that is often overlooked is how careful it was. Of course, loyalists sometimes killed a Protestant by mistake when they were drunk. Those things happened. They happened a lot less than one might expect, because sectarian killers were very often at pains not to shoot first and ask questions afterwards, but to ask questions first and shoot afterwards. A key strategy of identifying victims in sectarian killing revolved around what anthropologists sometimes call the process of telling, how one works out which community a stranger belongs to. The English do it with class all the time. But in Northern Ireland, these tactics of identifying which community someone belongs to are a necessary social skill to navigate daily life in the province. Most of the time, that concern to identify which community a stranger belongs to is driven by nothing more than a concern for politeness. One needs to know who one's talking with so one doesn't unnecessarily cause offence. No one is crude enough to ask these questions outright. It is always indirect, which school did you go to or your name? But these are precisely the strategies that are used by sectarian killers to make sure they really do have a potential victim from the other community. Exactly the same tests diagnostic tests, one could call them, looking for rosary beads, or asking someone to say the Hail Mary. If you've heard that every Sunday and you have a gun held to your head, you're probably going to remember how to say it. If you've never heard it, you're probably not going to be able to bluff it. Exactly the same tests are used in the 1920s as are used in the 1970s and the 80s. What is striking here is how precise so much of the sectarian killing is. It's often described as random but that is only partly true. It acquires its impact through a bounded randomness. It's random because any member of the opposite community will serve as a victim, and it's bounded because only members of the opposite community will serve as a victim. And the two together give it its terrifying, destabilising power. There are very profound reasons for optimism in Northern Ireland. The analytical problem to explain is not how much violence there has been in Northern Irish history, but how little. 
Violent conflict in Northern Ireland has never turned into a full-scale civil war. The power of the British state has something to do with that, just as the power of the British state has something to do with prolonging it. That has been the tragedy of the Troubles. The British army was necessary to prevent a civil war. The British army was also the reason that the Irish Republican insurgency continued for so long. It also has to do with more positive attitudes amongst the population. The, the true number of militants, extremists, whatever we want to call them, is often very limited. And there is an enormous folk wisdom about where this potential for violence can lead. We also perhaps need to remember and to celebrate the achievements of grassroots initiatives, which often remain invisible, and yet which at times have arguably had a very profound effect. In 1976, at one of the worst moments in the Troubles, a movement called the Peace People arose, calling for an end to the conflict. They became genuinely cross-community, although they emerged from the Catholic nationalist community. The IRA saw them as a threat, apologists for British rule. They called for an end to the conflict and were howled down by all manner of politicians and various factions as being naive utopian dreamers because they said the violence just has to end and then we can talk. In the mid-1990s they were proved exactly right. The violence did have to end before the real talking could begin. In the words of their chief ideologue Kieran McEwan, the achievements of the peace people derided and often forgotten as they now are, were about the news that didn't happen. The victories of peace initiatives, large and small, are the lives that aren't lost, the violence that doesn't happen. Their victories are invisible. 